0: Man, what an incredible season of Abide, and to finish it up the way that we did with Abide Nights, uh, incredibly powerful. I just wish that I could have been here in person for it. Um, Lindsay and I were actually uh, sick. In fact, two weeks ago when Pastor David preached, I was gone for my spring semester class and continuing, those of you that have been around here, I'm going back to school to get my... Doctorate. So Pastor David preached that week and then we came back and then got sick and it wasn't COVID. And the reason I know is because I tested three different times periodically through the process, some other viral thing or cold or something that had happened. But we got to watch online. Thank you for the power of technology. And so to finish up the abide season like that was just really, really incredible. And again, like I said, we watched online, but I wanted to be here in person because I wanted to explain to you, particularly the two communicators that spoke. One, uh, Pastor Brian, who spoke first. He is the pastor of Westridge Churches. If you were here, you heard that planted our church 19 years ago. In fact, we were the very first church plant out of Westridge Church. I was not the pastor then, but I came when our church was five years old. And Pastor Brian is my pastor. He is such an influential guy in my life, in the life of our church, and so I'm glad you got to hear from him. And then the second night, uh, Pastor Chris, who pastors Hope Church in Johns Creek area, is now a church planter that our church is supporting and helping. And I get a chance to be, not a father to him, I'm not that old yet, but maybe like a big brother, uh, and helping him in his journey Uh, in church planting. So it's just this really cool kind of multi-generational night uh, or few nights for our church, but then particularly just to hear how God moved in your lives. And that's why we wanted to share that video with you so that you could hear some of those stories for just how God was working in people's lives. And now that we're through that season, it doesn't mean that we're done with that. Like, okay, check, did that. But our prayer is that that season would continue throughout this season, through the rest of this year. And things that God did in your life, things that maybe God planted in your life in seed form, now you can water it. And so I wanna to continue to encourage you to do that. But now as we get back into the gospel according to John, and we are gonna finish this, this, this season, uh, go all the way at least till Mother's Day. I'm so excited to get back into this because it really is the crux of the entire book. Chapters 18 through 21 are really the entire book for which John, the purpose for which John wrote it. So let me pray and then we'll jump into it. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the opportunity as always that we have to gather together to sing, to celebrate, to see people and to have your spirit communicate this word to us. God, as we open up your word now, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the truth that is contained in it, God, because as we're gonna see today, this is the gospel. And so God, I pray that you would help us. As always, God, I ask you to help me to communicate it in a way that honors you and is helpful to us because I really do believe that the power that you have invested in these Words. There is nothing like this book. And God, if this word gets planted in our lives, and it will bear fruit like we talked about during Abide. And that's what we want. We want the fruit of the Spirit. And so God, would you grow that in our life now? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, we're gonna be in John chapter 18. All right, John chapter 18. But this season now that we are in, not only is it February, but it is the season in the gospel according to John where we're really gonna start taking this march towards Easter or towards the cross. And so we strategically arranged arranged this so that coming out of Abide, when we started John chapter 18, that now there's this shift that takes place between what Jesus did on earth to the final purpose for which he came, which was to march towards the cross. So chapter 18 and chapter 19, we will take over the next two months, and we will finish it, uh, chapter 19, the week before Easter, because we're going to talk about Literally, Jesus marching towards the cross and all the events that John records leading up to that. And then in chapter 20, you get the resurrection, and that's what we'll deal with on Easter weekend. But I want you to know that there's now a remarkable or marked change from what we've been discussing, Jesus's life and ministry, to now getting into Jesus's death. And the reason why that's so important is because if we're not careful we can misconstrue what we think the gospel is. You know, people will say things like this, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And that's a pithy statement. It's one of those statements. It's like, oh yeah, it's memorable, but it's wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is the gospel is not fundamentally something that we do. The gospel is not good advice. You know, there's a lot of well-meaning Christians and churches today, and I do think they're well-meaning most times, that will look at everything that we've read about Jesus and all the miracles he did and all the, you know, all the great things he did. You know, he hugged babies and he you know, blessed lambs and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, it's kind of like that Mr. Rogers Jesus. Everybody likes that cat because how can you get offended by him? But that is not the purpose or the essence of the gospel. It's not just look at what Jesus did and do that. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news about something that was done. And it wasn't just Jesus's sinless life. It was his sacrificial death. And that's what we're gonna look at starting in John chapter 18. So let's jump in. We're gonna be in verses one through 14. I'm not gonna read them all to you at once, but kind of set up the stage now. Verse one, it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Chapter 17, right? It's the beauty of numbering. You could know what he just said. Chapter 17 was the high priestly prayer. It was the conversation Jesus had in the upper room with his disciples from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. So after he spoke those words, John says, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, I'll come back to this towards the end of the message, but just geographically speaking, you need to understand that they were up in the Temple Mount. A lot of people believe that that is where the upper room was, in kind of the eastern corner. And they leave from the Temple Mount and they go out to the east towards the Mount of Olives. And between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, if you look this up on a map, there's a valley. Now here it calls it the Brook Kidron, but it's known as the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Kidron Valley is a little bit easier to say. But Jehoshaphat was a king. And the reason why it's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat is he defeated Israel's enemies in that valley, which will be make more sense to you later. But that's the exact way that Jesus came, because on the other side of Mount of Olives is Bethany, where Jesus came from. So he comes into the Temple Mount from the east, and that is important, because Zechariah and other prophets of the Old Testament talked about how the Messiah would come from the east. In fact, there's a prophecy that a lot of people believe that when he returns, he'll come to the Mount of Olives, which is to the east, and he will split it. And there's this battle that will take place there. So he goes out that way, and at the base of the Mount of Olives is a garden. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's still there today. In fact, when we went to Israel a few years ago, we prayed in this garden, which I got to tell you was quite amazing, which is why we want to go back, Lord willing, at some point in the future and take people from our church so that you can visualize these things as you read them. And it was quite amazing to kneel next to these trees and think, this tree could have heard Jesus pray. I mean, I love trees. In fact, our whole mission statement is built around the visual of a tree. But to think that this tree heard Jesus pray. You know, nature responds when Jesus talks. And so to be there in that place is just crazy. And so I just want you to know, kind of geographically, this is where this is taking place. Now look at verse 2. Now Judas, what wall, right? If you've been around, you know I like conjunctions. In fact, my mother-in-law gave me a T-shirt for Christmas this year that said, conjunction, junction, what's your function? I love it. The word there now could also be the conjunction but, but Judas, who betrayed him, obviously John's writing this after the fact, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Right, You can visualize kind of a fantastical story of people with pitchforks and lanterns, right, going in to raid a city. But one thing I want to point out here that's quite interesting to me, in fact, coming out of this season of Abide, it says Judas knew where Jesus was because he met there often. He met there often. This is not even the point of the sermon. It's a freebie, which is why you should always attend because you never know. You might get more than one. People are like, your sermon was long. I'm like, which one? Because I preach multiples. But what I just want to point out here is that Jesus' pattern gave away his position. He had a pattern of going to a place often. So much so that his enemy even knew where to find him. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is coming out of the season of Abide, you know, we pray for and fast for 21 days. And the point of that season is not just for the 21 days, but to begin a pattern in your life. So I would strongly encourage you to keep praying, to keep reaping the scriptures. And I would strongly encourage you to keep fasting. It has spiritual benefits and physical benefits, And according to most numbers in the United States, Americans could do with some fasting. So you might do that once a week, right? You might take up intermittent fasts. It's amazing how all these things that the Bible talked about for thousands of years, now people are like, this is so amazing, as if we're the smart ones. But here's my point to you. Especially if you're married or if you have children, I hope to develop patterns that are so predictable for my, my spouse and my kids that they know what to get with me. I don't want to be so unpredictable. We even talk about it like this, you're flying off the handle. Let me ask you this question. Are you the same? Do you have integrity? You know, that's what integrity means. You're whole, you're integrated. You're the same at work, at home, with your boys, with your family. There's this predictability. There's this oftenness that occurs in your life that your patterns give away your predictability. I just, again, want to point that out. And yeah, Matt costs you something, but it'll be worth it. Now it goes on, verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, a couple things. Again, this is like sermon within sermon within sermon. because I mean, you could read the Bible a thousand times and still learn something every time because it's a living thing. One thing I just want to point out here is Jesus knew all this was going to happen. He knew all this was going to happen. And yet he steps into it anyway. You know, there's a lot of us that want to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen. Can I just tell you, you probably don't want to. Because if you did, you may be like, well, I ain't going to do that. Here's the most amazing thing about Jesus it's not just that he did what he did. It's that he knew what he knew and he still did what he did. He knew all this was going to happen. Now again, side note, theologically speaking, that's very comforting to me because there's different kind of schools of thought within theology when we think about or we talk about or, or try to understand things in the Bible that we don't fully understand, or it's hard for us to comprehend, and one of those is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, which I've done many messages on that before. The biggest problem we have as humans is we think about free will from a very secular perspective as if you're free to do whatever you want, which the Bible says you're not free, you're a slave. Yes, you're free to choose, but you will never choose right without God. And so you are free, but you're not as free as we once were before sin because you're a slave. And so this concept of free will and sovereignty, people try to wrestle it down. It's like, well, what is God's choice? What is our choice? Here's what I want you to understand. The sovereignty of God does not cancel out humans' choice, but sometimes people will elevate free will to the point to where it actually cancels out the sovereignty of God. In fact, there's an entire system of thought that we do not dis- uh, ascribe to here at Revolution Church called open theism, which you can go and look this up later if you're that kind of person, you'd like to nerd out on this kind of stuff. And the idea of open theism is the future is not fixed, it's open. And God, even though he is sovereign, limits his sovereignty to where the future is determined by human choices. And then God reacts to those choices because in their mind, that is required in order for love to exist. I would just like to submit to you, our God is not the kind of God that just reacts to human actions. And I would also like to submit to you, you don't want a God like that. Because if you have a God that's just reacting to everything all the time, then you have a God that is limited but statements like this, in my mind, kind of blow that up. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He knew. Did he cause it? Was it him or was it Judas? Yes. How does all that work? I don't know. Your brain is about eight pounds of gray matter. You can't understand it, neither can I. We can understand it to a point but I don't think it's open in the sense that God is just responding. I do think God is sovereign over the future because the Bible speaks of like how Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, that doesn't feel like it's open. That feels like it's pretty fixed. Well, this is feudalism. No, it's not, You to have a choice. Well, how does all that work? I don't know, but choose wisely, <laughs> right? But again, here's why I'm saying this. This is why this is of great comfort to me. Even evil choices that other people, that you make and other people make cannot thwart God's will. God is not beholding to evil. He is not the author of it, but he ultimately can redirect it and control it and use it. That's why we get verses. That's why we love verses like Romans 8, 28, right? God uses all this for our good and his glory. So even what John Piper calls spectacular sins, like Judas betraying Jesus, is a part of the will and plan of God. Now, another thing. Jesus says something here. He says, I am he. Now look at verse 6. It says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now, this is the problem sometimes when we're reading a text in English, which I would imagine most of us can't read or speak, you know, New Testament Greek. But whenever you're translating language, some of it doesn't mean that our English Bibles are wrong. It just means that sometimes when we translate something, we will translate it to make it more sense in our language, but it can lose uh, not some of its authority, but sometimes we can miss the the ultimate meaning. And, And here's an example. When Jesus responds back, I am he, in the Greek, there's no word he there. So what that means is Jesus responded back with, I am. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, that's a very significant word. In fact, in Greek, it's just one word. And this word is not just a word, it's a name, It's the covenant name of God that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush, right? When Moses was on the backside of the mountain because of sin in his life, and he's kind of running away, doing his own thing, herding goats, and God comes to him, and Moses sees this burning bush on fire, but it's not being consumed, which, just a word of caution to you, if you see a burning bush in the wilderness and it's not burning up, run, but he goes to he's like, oh, this is interesting. I'll go see it. And then God speaks to him and says, I'm sending you back into the place that you fled from because I want you to free my people. And Moses says, who should I say who sent me? And God says, I am. He's like, I know, but who? He's like, you're right. <laughs> and it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's his covenant name. So when Jesus responds to the question, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I am. Now, we know that this phrase has such power, if you look back there, it literally knocked them back on their, off their feet. Did you catch that? It says, when he said this, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, remember who is in this crowd. It's Pharisees, some religious leaders, and soldiers, soldiers of the Roman army. Now, again, I don't know how much you know about history, but Roman soldiers didn't scare easily. In fact, if you're just looking back throughout powerful you know, regimes throughout human history, Rome has to be up there at the top, if not the most powerful. I mean they conquered the known world at the time built so much i mean our entire governmental system is based upon their system the senators and all that kind of stuff so roman soldiers did not scare easily these dudes were brutal In fact, Jesus even prophesied that the Roman soldiers would destroy the temple, and they did in 70 AD. They threw the rocks down. And what's crazy is you can still see them on the southwest side of the temple, the rocks that they threw over. And you can go to the last place that the Jewish stronghold was in Masada in Israel, where they went up to the top of one of the places that King Herod had built, which was this fortress. And it is this brutal Uh, and and not in a good way, but in a horrible way of how the Romans literally killed off the last of the ones that were there and how they did it. They were brutal. So what was it that sent those jokers stumbling to the ground? I mean, think about it. Like, let's just imagine this is Jesus right here. All right? Not being sacrilegious. It's just an illustration, all right? And so Judas and these religious leaders... And these soldiers come up, they say, we're looking for Jesus. And then Jesus responds back, I am. To the point to where these dudes are like, and they fall. I would illustrate it for you, but I might not get up. And I don't have a clicker around my neck, all right? But just imagine this. I mean, Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, That same voice, and and again, he was a man, right? But I don't know what happened. And These are kind of those things I want to talk to God when we got all eternity to discuss them. Like when Jesus said, I am, did something supernatural happen to where like the sound waves, like, you know, the, like I said earlier, the nat- nature responds to his voice. So do like the sound waves and all this stuff, we are like, oh, this is God talking. Let's magnify this to where, and I don't know if you watch like superhero movies or that kind of stuff to where, like you ever seen those movies how like the sound waves go? You're like, the sound waves multiply and it's like, I am. Right? Or like anybody ever play Street Fighter back in the day? One of the greatest art Did you just go, you can, right? I mean, like, But whatever happens, two English words, one Greek word, I am, throws some of the baddest soldiers in human history back on their feet to where they fall to the ground. And if that were not enough, and this is, you know, sometimes I'm just like, Jesus, you just, I mean... You ain't right, right? You OG. <laughs> he asked him again. Who are you seeking? And he says it again. Can you imagine that moment? You know, I, I picture that moment. The Roman soldiers are like, what have you gotten us into, Judas? And Judas is like, May have made a mistake. With a word, he throws them back. Now look at verse 9. This was to fulfill the, what's that next word there? Word. This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. like, "Uh, well, I think you lost Judas. No, because that was prophesied too. He's referring to the 11. Now, you're going to hear this word fulfilled over the next few chapters quite a bit because John wants you to know something. In fact, this entire purpose of the writing of his book, John chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, says, these were written. Jesus did many other things but these were written so that you might know that he is the Christ and by believing may have life in his name the most amazing thing to me about our bible is in the old testament there's over 3 to 400 messianic prophecies about the messiah and the statistical chance that one person could fulfill all of those at the same time is not like one in a thousand, a one in a million, not even one in a billion, not even one in a trillion, which if you know anything about math, this is when you start multiplying stuff on your calculator and it wigs out and it's like one to the E to the, because it's too many zeros. Let me say it to you like this. The statistical chance that Jesus would fulfill this is more than our national debt. (laughs) Three trillion. This is like four quadrillion. And yet he did it. The statistical chance that one person in one lifetime could do that is statistically unfathomable. But he did. See, people, faith isn't blind. It's based on evidence. And Jesus fulfilled this, and John wants you to know that. Now, that's not, again, the whole point of the message. The whole point of the message is what is this word? Now, let's keep going. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter... Yeah, another conjunction. So you got Jesus, you got Judas, and you got Simon. Which definitely Peter is in a better circumstance than Simon, but Peter still got things wrong all the time too. The difference between Judas and Peter is Peter repented. Judas hung himself. So Peter messed up too. In fact, Peter was the guy who was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. At the Mount of Transfiguration, him, James, and John, when Jesus transfigures Moses and Elijah there. You know what Peter thinks? Now's a good time for me to talk. (laughs) And he kills the moment. Look at what Peter does here. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Another prophecy fulfilled. Again, little side note here. It's amazing to me. Jesus on another occasion says, Do you not think I could call down legions of angels, which are tens of thousands? You think this is happening to me because Judas figured me out? Or I'm afraid of the Roman army? Or these religious leaders? When he says this phrase, Peter, put your sword up, it's interesting. The word there put is the same word to cast, throw. It's the same kind of word we would talk about when we say cast out demons. Here's what's interesting to me. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter doesn't realize at this moment He's operating under a different spirit. He is operating under a demonic spirit who the only answer to any problem is force. He says, put your sword up. Here's another thing that's very intriguing to me. Paul in Ephesians chapter six, when he's talking about taking on the full armor of God, Says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the, anybody know? The Word of God. See, Jesus just demonstrated the power of the Word. He knocked those suckers back on the ground with a word. And then Peter's like, I know. I'm going to pull out the sword. And Jesus says, bro, put your sword up. Or let me say it to you like this. Peter, you picked up the wrong sword. You picked up a man-made sword, not the sword of the Spirit. Church, if there's just one nugget I could give you out of this text, put your sword up or let me say it in the positive, pick up the right sword. You know, every two years, and for sure every four years, we go through an idolatry test in this country. We call them elections. And it's amazing to me how many Christians pick up the wrong sword. And you hear it. People are like, well, they did it. We better get smart. They're using tactics that are questionable. We better get smart or we're gonna lose our power. You know, because that's what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the powerful, right? And we don't understand how, as Christians, we can so easily sell our loyalties to demonic spirits by picking up the wrong swords. Christians, if I could say something to you, put that sword up. In your marriage, put that sword up. Well, she cut me. Eye for an eye. Yeah, you keep doing that, you're all going to be blind and deaf. Cutting off people's ears and stabbing people's eyes and you might feel better about yourself, but listen to me, but you might be actively working against the plan of God. See, if Peter would have won the battle with the wrong sword, it would have messed up God's plan because God's plan was for Jesus to take the sword. That's what he says. Let's continue. You say, why in the world would he do that? Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to, um, to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. See, so here's what happens. We'll get into this more next week, but they lead Jesus back. Now it's kind of to the south part of the temple to Caiaphas' house, which we've been there as well. And John is reminding us, this is the same guy who had prophesied that it's better for one man to die for the people. See, remember I said Jesus knew all that was happening to him? Not only did he know all that was happening to him, he knew how God was going to use all that was happening to him. And what was God going to use with all that was happening to him? He was going to use Jesus as a substitute for the sins of the people. For the people. That's the title of this week's message. And this is the essence of, this is the main point of the message. For the people. See, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news, as I said, about what Jesus did for the people. What's interesting to me is obviously the Bible is the greatest book ever written. It's the number one bestseller every year. But arguably, maybe the second greatest document ever written is our Constitution. And it starts off with three words. We, the people. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I love the Constitution. I think it is a great way to run a government. But the Bible has a different message than we the people. See, the governing document of our country is about the people governing themselves. But the governing document of God's kingdom is about God doing something for the people. Let me give it to you like this. In fact, if you're taking notes, I have this here on the screen. For the people equals penal substitutionary Atonement. You're like, what in the world is that? I'll explain it to you. It's a theological concept that was popularized in the Reformation. And there's three specific words. And they all mean something. The word penal is just simply shortened form of penalty. It means legal. See, the reason why Jesus had to be substituted for the people is because the people we're in legal trouble we had sinned and we deserved a penalty because god is a just god and people wrestle with this concept today and it amazes me no one wants god to be just but they want the judges in front of them to be just Because which one of you wants to have something bad happen to you, and then you go into the courtroom and the judge says, What do you really mean by robbery? I mean, is that murder? And when you get a verdict, and I've been in circumstances with people in our church where they got what we considered an unjust verdict, and there's anger. I'm telling you, you do not want to live in a world with an unjust judge or an unjust God. God is a just God, and his justice demands a price for the penalty. And Romans says the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death, which leads us to the second word, substitutionary. See, this is about the mercy of God. See, people think the justice of God and the mercy of God are opposed to each other, but they're not. This is why the Bible describes when Jesus was put forth as a sacrifice, it was so that God could be just and the justifier. He doesn't wanna be just just. He also wants to be the justifier, which means he wants to be judge and justice, but merciful at the same moment. So the good news of the gospel is you had a debt, I had a debt that we owed, but God substituted Jesus in our place for our sin. See, that's the second part. The third one is atonement. It's the idea that a satisfaction of the debt has been met. When you atone for something, it means you buy it back and now it's free and clear. It's like paying something off. So you had a legal, you had a substitute, and then you have atonement. But here's the thing. You cannot get atonement without the first two. Let me give you a bigger explanation of this. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 11, this is what John actually said when Caiaphas had prophesied this. Look at this. John chapter 11, verses 47 through 52. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. See, they were afraid of the Romans. If Jesus starts causing a big enough stir, they'll squash that and then blame us. Verse 49 But one of them, Caiaphas, was high priest that year, and the role of high priest was very, very important. He acted as the mediator between God and the people. Said to them, I love this phrase, you know nothing at all. What a great phrase. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand, here it is, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, listen to the amazingness. You talking about the sovereignty of God? Listen to 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, check this. (laughs) I love conjunctions. And not for the nation only. But also... but Judas, but also together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the gospel. And in his sovereign hand, God used the Romans. He used the Jewish people. He used the disobedience of Judas to bring about his plan to substitute Jesus for the people. I told you earlier that when Jesus went out of the temple and he went through the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives, I said I would refer back to what this is me doing now. What's amazing about the Kidron Valley, it's also known as the Valley of Judgment. Or, listen to this, the winepress of God's wrath. Why is it significant that Jesus left the temple and went through the valley of Kidron? Because he had to walk through the valley of judgment. He had to walk through the valley of the winepress of God's wrath in order to be substituted for the people. Which amazingly, the temple, it faced, you know, when the high priest would go in and he would sacrifice, it looked out the east towards the Mount of Olives. As if to say, they were looking for the lamb that was to come from the east. And he did. But see, people today struggle. And again, I don't understand it. They struggle with this concept of God's wrath. They're like, no, he's a God of love. I don't know if you're doing this, why, but, which I've said this before, only two places in the same context in John doesn't say God is love. The Bible speaks way more of his wrath. you like, I don't like a God of wrath. Let me just say something. Any father that doesn't get angry about what others are doing to his children is not a loving father. You better believe God has wrath. Why? You see, Jesus did this to get his father's children back. That's why he did it. Last point, and we're done. Jesus died for the people and is gathering the people. Jesus died for the people, for the children of God. And here's what's amazing to me. You know, that was a once for all act, how the Bible describes it. That's the good news. Once for all, Jesus died in our place for our sin, which means before you and I were born, what needed to be done to save you was already done. You just have to accept it. You don't have to earn it. You can put your sword up and you can quit trying. And you can receive the word of God, which was substituted for you in your place. If that were not amazing enough, not only did Jesus die for the people, but John said he's doing something else. This is where not just would die, but and also. You want to know what Jesus is doing right now? Right now, at this very moment. Through the Holy Spirit, he is gathering the children of God that are scattered abroad. That's what he's doing right now. And he's gathering them so that he can apply the atonement that he purchased for them. You know, a few years ago, you may not have caught this, but we used to call our weekend events like this services, but we changed them several years ago to gatherings, and that was significant, and it was on purpose because we wanted to send a message that when we gather, we are participating with Jesus and gathering his people. You know what we do here every week on Thursdays and Sundays is we are participating in the active mission of God. Because he wants his children home. Which is why pastors like myself and in churches all over the world have to stand up and preach the gospel which is not the five ways to this or the seven ways to that, but it is, you're a sinner. He's the Savior. He died for you in your place. And if you believe him, you will have life in his name. That's the gospel. And I haven't gotten tired of preaching it in over 20 years and I won't get tired of preaching it. You don't want to know why? Because it still amazes me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wrench. Wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. My friends, do you understand what this is? This is the greatest act of sovereign kindness. This is God satisfying His justice and displaying His mercy. And if you can see that, you'll be a part of the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. There is no message like the message of Jesus. And God, there is no good news without a penalty that had to be paid that was substituted by Jesus offering himself on the cross for atonement. God, I pray right now for anybody here or listening or watching that has maybe heard this before, but it never hit them. God, I pray this word right now, just like it did to those Roman soldiers, would knock them off their feet. And show them, when they fall, their humility. And you would use that to humble them so that you could reach out your hand and help them up and give them new life. we looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted in Jesus to substitute himself for you, then right now you can we do this through praying, so you don't have to do it out loud. It's just ultimately between you and God, but you can follow after me. If you want to trust Christ, it says this: Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That even though I'm a sinner, you sent your Son to be my Savior, to substitute Himself. I receive in faith Jesus, and I believe that He rose from the dead. So would you make me alive? Forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Again, no one looking around or talking, but if you're here in one of our physical locations and you just prayed that, would you just simply lift up your hand? We just have a gift we wanna give you. There's men and women gonna walk around, put it in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Thank you. But then those of us that are here and you understand this, I wanna encourage you, there's a difference between understanding it and applying it. You may know this, but you may not live in light of it. And let me ask you this question. When's the last time that the word of God has knocked you down? Not in a bad way, but in an amazing way. When's the last time that the word of God hit you so hard That it convicted you, convicted you of your current sin. And you don't need to get saved again, but you do need to repent. When's the last time that the word of God hit you like a sonic boom and you were just overwhelmed with the majesty of the word of God? where you looked up from your humble position, seeing the one who said, I am, and you were just amazed. I'm praying as we come out of this season of abiding that the word of God would still have that powerful effect over our lives. God, we submit ourselves to your word. Yes, we want Jesus as our savior, but we also want you as Because you are our Lord. You have the authority to speak into our life. And we are saying to you, we're listening. And so God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what Jesus did do. We thank you for what Jesus is doing. And we thank you for what Jesus will do one day when he returns, when he will gather us all together forever. But until that time, God, help us to take this gospel message to more and more people. Help us to continue to proclaim this, to multiply disciples and leaders and campuses and churches, because you are in the business of gathering people. And we want to join you on that mission. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.